If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open it to John's Gospel and the 15th chapter. I want to um, read to you a few verses from this passage. We're going to read just a couple of verses at the beginning, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 12 and read the, the last section there of this uh, particular moment where Jesus is using this analogy of the true vine. So we've been in this passage for a number of weeks now, just exploring each of the different themes. As you recall at the start, I said that this passage is somewhat like a rope that's weaved of many strands. And uh, in order to fully understand what's going on here, you kind of have to pull it apart and unravel and take one strand at a time. And we've been seeking to do that over recent weeks. I want to read to you then from John 15, verse 1. Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So already you're feeling something of the heaviness and intensity of what Christ is describing here. He's describing the people of God as being like this vine of which Christ is the trunk. He's the center of everything. And each one of you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're part of the family of God, you call yourself a follower of Christ. He says, you're a branch. And therefore, your destiny, your purpose, the intention for which Christ has called you into his family is that you now might be full of his life, just as the life from the trunk flows into the branches, and that that life will express itself as fruitfulness in you and through you. And we were exploring what that meant in earlier weeks. Let me just read a, couple, a bit more from the beginning there. So verse 3, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Now jumping ahead to verse 12, he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Father, I pray that as we further uncover and explore what the Lord Jesus was saying to his disciples on the very night when he was betrayed, arrested, put on trial to be crucified. Lord, I pray that the word of Christ will pierce our hearts, bringing transformation that flows from the inside to the outside, changing the way we think, the way we feel, so that ultimately we'll live for you and for your glory. I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I said to you, we've been trying to uncover something of what Jesus means in this passage. And we thought about this call, this command to abide in him, what it means to abide in Jesus, what it means to live lives of fruitfulness for him. Last week, we were thinking about the, um, the command here to love one another as one of the main ways in which we demonstrate that we're God's people. God's people are called to be those who love each other as family, brothers and sisters in Christ who are bound together. And that when that love is absent, the people of God are sickly, if not already spiritually dead. Today, I want to focus in on this theme that comes through towards the end here, on Jesus calling us friends, and particularly in verse 15 when he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, I don't think I need to stress too much just what extraordinary and radical shift this is in the tenor of Scripture and the way that God treats us as his people. It marks a pivotal moment in Scripture when Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants or slaves, I call you friends. And therefore has enormous implications and consequences for how we think about ourselves and the way in which we conduct ourselves and how we live out our lives as believers. And yet I also think that um, this is not well understood, what's meant here. And therefore, 
what I want to do today is to interrogate this idea with you and try to unpack and unpick what Jesus is saying here when he says, no longer do I call you servants or slaves, but I call you friends, and therefore help us to see better what it is that Jesus wants us to understand about ourselves and our place before him. We're going to begin by asking this question. What does he mean by friendship? What is friendship with Jesus? What does Christ mean when he calls you friend? And we have to ask the question because I think it would be fair to say that this word friend means different things in different places. It has a different meaning depending upon its context and the way in which it's used and the person to whom you're referring. So in times of warfare, the word friend is used in opposition to the word enemy. It just means someone who's on your side. It doesn't necessarily infer any degree of closeness or intimacy. It just means that you are friends in the sense that you're not fighting each other. If you use the, the word in the context of your workplace, I think in most situations, if you talk about someone as a friend at work or a work friend, um, you do not necessarily mean that you're that close to them. It may be, but typically that's not the case, is it? It's just someone that you'd be happy to go out for lunch with at Pret during a lunch hour or someone that you'll have a drink with after work perhaps and hang out with for a bit before you head home to see your real friends. And therefore, the word friend means something different depending on the context. I think that if you use the word to refer to someone of the opposite sex, very often it's a word that's defining them as a non-romantic relationship. So saying that person is a friend is a way of saying I'm not interested. So it really does depend on how the word is used and where the word is used, when the word is used, as to what we understand it to mean. And of course, it's normal day-to-day use is to refer to that circle of people around you who have come to a level of closeness and intimacy with you such that you are able to share your life with them and you share interest and affection with them. That's the normal way in which we use this. But Christ is using this in a very unique and very specific way. I think we must understand if we are to to understand the implications of the word. In order to to uncover what this this is, I just want to push aside a couple of wrong understandings or definitions of, of what this word friend here means. One is this, that I don't think he's using the word to allow us to move from formality towards informality in the way that we relate to God or the way that we relate to Jesus. So typically in our day-to-day use, the language of friendship does imply a level of informality. You don't necessarily dress up to see your friends. You might be happy enough for them to see you in your pajamas or without any makeup on or or whatever it is that where you feel you're at your most vulnerable and uh, real. And it's true that Jesus does move us forward in terms of the way we relate to God, that there is a measure of intimacy and love that he introduces, I think, that marks something of a change, a transition. So you think about the Lord's Prayer when the disciples asked him, how shall we pray? And he said, the first line, you go to God like this, he said, our Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, when you've read your scriptures and you know all the ways that we can address God, or you take that in context of the ancient world in which a ruler or an emperor or a king might be addressed through a long formal sequence of titles, you know, conqueror of this and this land, ruler of the distant places, king of kings and all these kinds of titles, to come to God and just say, our Father who's in heaven, does mark a measure of just that informality and the sweetness of intimacy that Jesus was calling us to. And even here in, in uh, this very night when Jesus is speaking here in, in John's gospel, we read about a little moment that takes place when they're sitting down to have dinner. Well, not sitting down, they're lying down to have dinner, as was the custom. And so lying down around this low table, John, who's the disciple who wrote this gospel, just, it's a throwaway comment, but he says one of his disciples whom Jesus loved which is his way of referring to himself. I don't think you're meant to refer arrogance there. The one that Jesus loved. It's just actually, whatever his reason was, we won't go into today. But he says that disciple was reclining at table at Jesus' side, or on Jesus' side is a more literal way of understanding it. So they were actually lying on each other. It's kind of sprawled on Jesus at dinner time. 
which is, just shows you that there is a measure of intimacy and informality in the way that they're relating. And I think our first instinct is to hear the word friend and think that that's what Jesus is encouraging here. He's moving us from a reverence and awe and fear towards informality and what you might think of as a kind of chumminess or um, a closeness that, that just does away with all of that kind of, um, all that, that, that sort of stiffness that might otherwise characterize the way that you relate to Christ. But I don't think that fits what he's saying here at all. Um, for one thing, the disciples themselves, as they begin to see more of who Jesus is, particularly after his resurrection, they begin to appreciate his divinity, the level of formality does not decrease, but rather increases. There's an extraordinary moment when the apostle Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus and is not convinced that it's him because he saw him die on the cross. He says, I won't believe unless I put my hands in the hole in your side with a spear pierced his side and touch the holes in your hands. And Jesus allows him. And upon seeing, witnessing these gaping scars in his physical frame, Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. So he moves from thinking of Jesus as a close, intimate friend in, in, in the informal sense, to now revering him as God. And perhaps a more striking example of this is in the beginning of the book of Revelation, because this is the same man, John, who wrote John's gospel, and now caught up in a vision. The book of Revelation begins with this recounting of how he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he sees Jesus in his resurrected heavenly glory, and he says in Revelation chapter 1 that as he sees Christ's glory just totally revealed before him, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And the reason I stress this is just to underline for you, friends, that as much as I believe Christ calls us into a measure of closeness and intimacy, that never sits in opposition to a suitable fear and reverence of who God is and who Christ is. And therefore, when he says here, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends, I don't think that what he was describing here was the move from formality towards informality. So let's push that idea out of our minds. Another wrong turn, I think, here would be to understand that Jesus is bringing the disciples to a measure of equality. Now, friendship as you and I use the language in day-to-day -day terms, does typically denote equality of relationships. And it's in opposition to what very often you experience hierarchies in life, don't you? And so if you are in a highly hierarchical organization, then you don't tend to think of those who are many rungs above you in the authority structure as your friend. And the fact that they possess authority in many ways is the very thing which makes it impossible to be a close and intimate friend because the two things creates a kind of a conflict of interest. And so you can see this particularly in the military. It's not really possible for someone low in the military to be friends with a commanding officer. And so you might think that therefore what Jesus is doing here when he says, I don't call you servants or slaves, I now call you friends, is that he's doing away with all the hierarchy and the kind of authority structures and saying, look, you guys are just my mates now. And therefore, we can relate as equals. But that doesn't fit here either. And the reason why, you look at verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Which strikes us as somewhat odd. Because he's saying here, my friends are the ones who obey me. Now, whatever that means, and I think I will seek to try and uncover a little bit more of what he means by that later, the point has to be stressed here that anyone who disregards the authority, the absolute authority of Jesus in their life is not a friend of Christ. And so what he's saying here when he calls you friend is he's not doing away, he's not bringing you into that informal relationship, nor is he doing away with the absolute authority and demands that he makes on our lives as his followers. That would be a wrong way of understanding this language of friendship. So what then does he mean? And I think to summarize what I think Christ is 
saying here to the disciples would be to understand it like this. That he's saying, you are those whom I have brought into the know. Whom I brought into the inner ring. So that you understand my mind and my heart. You understand the mind and the heart of the God who made you. Now let me just try and paint for you a little bit of a background here. So that this, this becomes clearer in our understanding. The Old Testament uses the language of friendship very rarely in relationship to God. There are only two people in the Old Testament who are described as friends of God. And they're Abraham, the patriarch, the father of all the people of God, the first Hebrew called to be God's, God's man. And then much later, Moses, who led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, or at least took them to the border of the promised land. That man who gave the law, wrote the Torah. Only twice is the language of friendship with God used. And although we're not really told why Abraham is called a friend of God, but it does become very clear why Moses is, is called friend of God. And a couple of passages where it's described, the relationship he has with God is, is explained. For example, in Exodus 33, talks about Moses' practice of going into the tent of meeting, which was kind of like the mobile temple that they had in the wilderness. Every morning, encountering God's presence through intimate relationship with him. And it says in Exodus 33, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So what distinguished Moses from every other person alive in the world was the way that God spoke to him. He said, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And much later, after Moses has passed away, there's a kind of lament at the end of the book of Deuteronomy about what's been lost in this man Moses, who was a friend of God. And it's put like this. It says, There has not arisen a prophet since, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So what's described then in the Old Testament background as friendship with God is this experience of intimacy in which this man Moses hears God's voice and encounters God in this face-to-face -face way, this kind of unfiltered way in which he the revelation of who God is and God's will and heart and desire is made known to him with perfect clarity. Now, if you think about that, that is one of the key elements of friendship, genuine friendship in our lives. I think we're seeing a kind of bastardized version of this, aren't we, in our day and age, in the tendency that many have to overshare because of the false intimacy that can can be sensed online. You're in the privacy of your own home or with your own device, and then you can splurge um, intimate um, details about who you are and moments of vulnerability without much thought to who can read it. And I just regard that as a measure of the insanity of the world in which we live. Oversharers are generally an anathema to me anyway, but you know, this is one of the particular ways in which I think our world has gone slightly crazy. Because why would you bear your life to strangers in a way which that can then be weaponized and used to your own harm? As we've seen, you know, when social media first kicked off you know, in the mid-2000s, we're all doing that, and now it's coming back to bite you because you have screenshots of things you shared that you should never have shared and the intimate details of your life that you wish were not recorded permanently for all time for anyone who's interested. And therefore, you know, having guards on your privacy and the measure of intimacy so that only those who are friends is a natural measure of genuine intimacy and relationship and friendship, isn't it? That there are certain people who can know more about you precisely because they have become your friends in the true sense of the word. This is why I think Jesus uses this language, this transitional language, in which he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, we don't have servants or slaves these days. But we understand the dynamic here in which someone in a very inferior position does not have the right to ask the questions 
around what they are being called or commanded, instructed to do. Again, think about the military context. Someone who is in a very, you know, a grunt, as they say, someone who's a private in the military, a rank of private, has not got the, the right to ask questions of a commanding officer, may well be disciplined severely if they ever question orders. And even, I think, this is true within the corporate world, isn't it, to a certain degree, although we, we are living in a time that's trying to flatten the structures as much as possible. But the reality is that there are people, very often you, you may work in a company where there are people who are many rungs above you in authority, and what they want is what will happen. And you may not even know how the work that you are doing is contributing to what their goal or will is as someone who understands the direction and plan of the company. You just have to fulfill your task, even your small little task. And so you may be working on something of extraordinary importance. And you imagine working as a secretary in a legal company where you are typing up billion-dollar contracts but it doesn't matter whether you understand what you're writing, as long as you write accurately. The understanding, the why, all of that belongs with those in a senior position of authority. And Jesus was using this analogy. He's saying the slave in the household does not get to ask questions because they don't need to know. All they need to do is carry out the will of the person in authority over them. But he says, I don't call you slaves because I've drawn you into understanding the why. And so what he's saying here is that to be a friend of God, as a disciple of Christ, is to have been brought into the mind and the heart and the inner counsels of God in a way that is uniquely true of the New Testament believer, the, the believer who lives after Jesus. And you can think how this has been already true in your just natural experience. Think about the, the transition that took place from childhood to adulthood in your life. How as a child, your parents gave you instructions and had conversations that went over your head. If you were a nosy child as I was, you may have strained your ears to try and listen in and understand what your parents are talking about. I used to hide behind the sofa or on the stairs to catch up on their conversations about what was going on in their lives until they discovered me, of course. But as you get a little older and you grow into adulthood, your parents begin to bring you in to a measure of intimacy and understanding of what's going on in their heart and their life, what, what, their, what their will is. And that relationship shifts and you understand that in your experience. You may have experienced that also. As I've been using the analogy of organizations, if you've experienced promotions, you might find yourself being drawn into the inner ring of those who make decisions. And that's an interesting, sometimes thrilling experience, isn't it? To be drawn into that inner ring of intimacy. Now, Jesus is describing, therefore, something like that. He says, no longer do I call you servants. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, because I've made known to you. I've made known to you. The next question we have to ask then, if that's what he means by friendship, is this knowledge, this understanding, this intimate knowledge of the will and the heart and the plan of God. The next question is, what is it that we now know that we couldn't have known before Jesus, but that now brings us into this status or this definition of being his friends. Now, again, I need to bring you a little bit of backdrop just to try and help you understand what an extraordinary pivotal moment this is in Scripture. The Bible, to understand how this book works, you have to acknowledge that this and recognize this. The Bible is an unfolding narrative, a story, in which light is shed in momentary and... and uh, progressive ways throughout scriptures described as an unfolding revelation at first little is known about the plans and the purposes of God in history and as the scriptures unfold we move from mystery to more and more clarity about what God planned and intended from before the, the before the world was created it's a little bit like the assembling of a jigsaw if you don't possess the lid and you cannot see what the end picture is going to look like. If you, all you have is a jumble of pieces, it requires immense patience, but as you begin to find pieces that fit with pieces and you begin to bring the thing into some kind of assemblance, 
eventually you'll, you'll, you'll have an ah moment when you suddenly see what you couldn't see before. Or just to shift the analogy slightly, it's like an archaeologist might have the experience of uncovering something that's been buried for centuries or millennia. We once went to Israel and had the privilege of bumping into a guy who was very well-traveled there. And he took us out, my wife and I, out for a day around the Sea of Galilee. And he took us to a little-known archaeological spot at the top of a hill on the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. And there at the top of the hill was a completely abandoned archaeological dig. I don't know why, there just didn't seem to have been much interest in it. And as you walk through these ancient ruins, which we could touch with our own hands, we walked into an old, um, uh, an ancient kind of synagogue, and uh, we could push aside the dust that was on the floor, and there under our very feet was a mosaic that dated from around the time of Christ or soon after. And it's a thrilling experience to be able to just brush aside the dirt and the dust and see something which not many people have seen in the time in between when it was buried and now. And something like that is the experience that we have in the unfolding revelation of God, that there are secrets that God has not made, had not made known which progressively become clearer, insight that you begin to see about the plans and purposes of God. Moses himself says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And Moses was a man who had, because God had spoken to him, he had massively increased the reservoir of the things that were revealed so that the things that were secret were, more, were, were, were fewer, if you can see what I mean. But you see this progression through Scripture. Go back before Moses to the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's a moment in the book of Genesis when Jacob is speaking about his father Isaac. And referring to his father Isaac and Isaac's relationship with God, he describes God as the fear of Isaac. And so the, what you infer there is that Isaac described God. The name that he used of God was the fear. With You, know, you could think of it with a capital T and a capital F. So whatever relationship God had with Isaac, it seems that it was mainly characterized by this reverential fear of God. And no wonder, because when he was a boy, do you recall, he'd nearly been slaughtered on the sacrificial stone at the top of the mountain when his father was commanded to sacrifice him and then the ram was provided. So perhaps that shaped his, his view of God for all his life. And the question I want you to just wrestle with for a second is, do you think Isaac's knowledge of God was the same as Moses' knowledge or David's knowledge or Isaiah's knowledge? And the answer is no. These men, there was a progressive unfolding as the knowledge of who God is was peeled back layer after layer and they could see more and encounter more of the reality of God as revelation accumulated. That's how the Bible works. This is why the Old Testament may have, feel different to you from the New Testament. And everything changes with the coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ entered the world, what, remained, what was still murky became clear. It's described in Hebrews 1 like this. It says, referring to the Old Testament, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And then he adds this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So he's saying, in the Old Testament, the prophets had a measure of the revelation of the mind and heart of God. It's like someone walking into a dark room with a flashlight and just shining a torch. With a flashlight, you can only shine it into specific places at any given moment. And then as Jesus came into the world, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. It's like someone, as they say in the north, switched on the big light, the light in the center of the room that illuminates the whole room. It's put similarly in, in, uh, in John's gospel, at the very beginning of John's gospel. You remember how John opens, the famous opening of the book of John. It says, in the beginning, this is speaking about Jesus, in the beginning was the word. 
The Word was with God. It was with, well, with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Describing the life of Jesus before history began with the Father in eternity past as the Son of God. But then He says a little bit later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We go from partial knowledge, limited understanding, to suddenly the radiant illumination of the things of God, the heart of God, the mind of God. And I don't think there are any analogies or metaphors I can use that fully put across the extraordinary change that has taken place with the coming of Jesus into the world. Perhaps it's a little bit like the difference between meeting somebody online and then finally meeting them in the flesh, which can be a thrilling or horrifying experience depending on the person, can't it? And your expectations. Perhaps it's a little bit like the, the transition that took place when you could only hear voices on the radio and suddenly you had a television in your front room and then a few years later it was in color. Perhaps it's a bit like the difference between reading a recipe book. And there are people who do that, aren't there? I find that a strange thing to do <laughs> because I just find it utter torment. But if you, you can read recipe books, right, and you read the instructions of, and perhaps see the pictures of this food, but there's nothing like watching it be prepared for you. You see how I carefully choose the analogy? <laughs> I don't know how to cook, but watching it prepared for you and suddenly the smells, the sounds, and then the flavors as you taste that food. Or like opening a score of music and seeing those marks on the page, which if you are not a musician, just look like a spider crawled across the page with ink on its eight legs. And the difference between seeing what's written and then hearing the harmonies and the melodies and the chords as a skillful musician turns that into heard music. Something like that is being described in the Bible and by Jesus. When he says here, no longer do I call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. Now, there's something even more specific still that Jesus means here. When we ask, what is it that he made known to us that we didn't know before? In the very general sense, we now see God in a new way because now Christ is the revelation of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. So if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. And that's true, and that's true in, in a most important way. But what Christ means here in John 15 when he, he, he marks this transition for his followers from being slaves to, to friends is something more specific still than that. He's speaking specifically about the plans and the purpose and the will of God. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so you can ask the question in a slightly more specific and narrow way. What is it that we now know about the plans and the purposes of God that we could not have known if Jesus had not come into this world? And whilst there are many, many answers to that, I think there are five things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, the free offer of forgiveness through the death of Jesus. To use his own language on that very evening, shortly before he would be executed, when he offered them the bread and the wine, he says of the wine, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For centuries and millennia, the human heart did not know how it could feel clean before a holy God. And then Jesus entered the world and says, this is how you will be clean. I will shed my blood to wash away your sin. A second thing we know, the triumph that he would win over death 
before the coming of Jesus, there were hints and promises that the enemy that is death would be overcome. So for example, in Hosea 13, it says this, God says, I shall ransom them from the power of the grave. I shall redeem them from death. The promise that death would no longer have victory over us so that it would not be final. And yet it wasn't known how that would happen. And then the next verses say, O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your sting? It's the same line that Paul takes in his letter in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He said, death has lost its sting because if Christ was raised from the dead, then all who are followers of Jesus will one day be raised from the dead and death will no longer have the victory over us. We could not have known this before the coming of Jesus. The third thing is the supremacy of Jesus as the king over all. You see, all through the Bible, there was this growing, mounting anticipation that one day there will be a king who puts things to rights whose rule will be marked by peace and justice and righteousness, the very things that rarely, if ever, describe the rule of earthly rulers. But until the coming of Jesus into this world, we could not have imagined who that king was or the scope of the rule that he would inaugurate. But it's said about Jesus, just choose one verse here in John 3, It is said about him that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So that with the coming of Jesus into the world, we see the face of a king who is worthy and capable of ruling the entire universe. In contrast to the incompetence and the wickedness of all earthly rulers. The fourth thing we know about the plans and the purposes of God that we could not have known before the coming of Jesus was the global significance of the people of God, the church. This had been hinted throughout the Old Testament when God first spoke to the father of all God's people, Abraham, in Genesis 12. He said of him that I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And he also said that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, though he was one man, and as it says in Scripture, he is good as dead because he was old and he didn't have any children. The promise of God over him was, I'm going to multiply you, and through your descendants, every family on earth will experience the blessing of God. Now, here in Genesis 12, a promise like that to a single man who is basically the ancient equivalent of a Bedouin tribesman living in the desert makes no sense to our rational minds until you trace the thread of Scripture through. The birth of a nation some centuries after. The placing of that nation in the land of Canaan. The favor of God upon them. Their faithlessness, which results in their exile, but then God raising up a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the head of a new Israel, the church of God, the church which, whose, whose rule and reign, whose influence and blessing would extend to every nation on planet earth so that suddenly the promises of Scripture begin to make sense. It was hinted at in, in, in Isaiah 49 when it says about the church, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I'll make you as a light for the nations and my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Saying about Christ, God's servant Jesus that he'll be a light to the nations through his people and then suddenly we can understand what takes place at the end of the Gospels when the Lord Jesus Christ commissions his disciples and says, go into all nations, preaching the gospel, making disciples. The global significance of God's plans through his people that were whispered to Abraham and now in the 21st century begin to make sense when you see the church, if you look at a map, on every continent spread almost evenly across the entire world. How could that have happened? 
One last thing will be the certain return of Jesus to consummate all things. Now, there are many scriptures I could read to you about this. But my favorite one is in Acts 1 when Jesus is just about to ascend. He's just ascended into heaven in front of his disciples. And the disciples watch him and gawp into the, into the clouds. And they just stood there looking around, just looking up like this. And the angel says to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, just as he's ascended to God's right hand, he will just as certainly return again. Friends, this is impossible to do. But try and imagine with me for a second. whether we can maintain our hope and our joy if any one of those truths is put back into obscurity and hiddenness, if we don't know it to be true, if we don't know the forgiveness that's offered through Jesus, if we don't know the certainty of his triumph over death through his resurrection, if we don't know that he's the king who will rule all things, if we don't know that his plan was to touch every nation and every family on earth through his people, the church, if we don't know that he's certainly coming from to, re to return and reclaim this world and raise up the living and the dead and judge all people and bring about his rule and order on planet earth, if we don't know any one of those things, suddenly our hope collapses into nothing. Without Christ, in other words, it's like going on a journey in a passenger seat, blindfolded, with no idea of where you are going. And all you feel is the motion sickness and the nauseating dizziness of, of traveling without any concept of where life is going. But with Christ in the picture, it's like you're sat next to the driver with a map laid out in front of you, like our parents used to do back in the olden days, with a line drawn mapping the whole route so that you know exactly where you're going and whether you are en route to it. And all fear is dispelled and all mystery is dispelled. And he's saying, friend, that's what it means to be my friend. This is friendship. It's knowing the heart of God and the plan of God and all of its world-shaking, transforming implications for you right now. So the final question I want to ask with you is, why does this matter? And what difference does this make to our lives and our experience of relating to God and living for him? And to understand that, you have to recall the context of this, this passage that we've been reading each week. What Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, your destiny, if you are followers of me, is to be like living branches in the vine to bear fruit. You have a function, you have a purpose, you're my servants and you do my will, and your lives bear fruit. And that comes to a kind of culminating focus here in, the, in verse 16 towards the end when he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that, that fruit, your fruit should abide. So this whole passage is about function, the dignity of purpose, the calling that God puts upon you when you're a follower of Jesus that takes you from a life of meaningless circularity and wandering and total futility and just emptiness into a life of purpose and the dignity of being someone who knows what they're here on planet earth to accomplish and to do. That's what the whole chapter is about. Abide in me and your life will bear fruit and that fruit will last. He keeps saying that. And so what he's doing here at the end is he draws out this contrast between a slave and a, and a friend. Is he's wanting to show us the change that takes place in your heart, I think. When you understand the will and the plan of God. And how that changes your feeling towards what it is that God's called you to do. Now, I want to assert at one level, it is perfectly appropriate for Jesus to call us slaves. There's nothing inappropriate about that. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He's Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace, the, the one who is worthy to un, un, 
to open the scroll and to, to bear the crown and to lead his creation. That's Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which every believer always carries with them the sense of unworthiness before him and says, I'm just an unworthy slave. That's how Paul opened his letter to the Romans, isn't it? Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's wrong at all for us to always hold on to that understanding of our posture towards Jesus. I'm a slave of Christ. And he can demand of me what he wants. I'm here to serve him and not he me. Though he does serve me, there's such as grace. But when he marks this transition, he says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. This marks the abundance of his grace towards you, that even though he can demand of you service that is blindly obedient, ignorant, he nevertheless brings you into the status of being a friend and partner in his work and in his will. And so you can begin to see the difference between these two mindsets. And this is what I think Christ wants to accomplish in you, this transition. That on the one hand, there is a mindset in which you conceive of yourself only as a slave and obedience to Jesus as the servile obedience of a slave. And if that's true of you, then obeying Jesus feels like a burden. It feels heavy. It feels inconvenient. You know the sense of ought, I need to, I, I ought to obey Jesus, I ought to live a holy life, I ought to serve him in whatever ways he's called me to, but it feels like it grates with me. Or perhaps even it goes further than that, and you question his will. You question the goodness of his will. And you find yourself in an agony, in a torment inside, in which you're torn between two different ways of living. Yes, you hear the call of Christ, but also you're not quite sure about whether that's best for you, and you also want to live the way you want to live. And that agony and that, that, that tearing that takes place inside, and that often results in Christians whining, and complaining about the life of faithfulness to Jesus, well, that to me is the heart and the mind of a slave. Because what's the problem there? The problem is ignorance. The problem is that even though, though you may understand something of Christ's commands, you have never really comprehended his great and perfect will and his plan and what he's doing in this world and how you fit into that. And therefore, why your obedience matters. I was reading this week about a man who'd calculated a formula which supposedly will tell you how long it'll take between commencing a journey and when your children will begin to have a fight, will begin fighting and squabbling. And it was a number of, uh, a number of factors built into this formula, that included the number of siblings in the car, the space which they are parted, whether you give them any screens to distract them, um, the temperature, whether they have snacks, which by the way, if you ever go in my car, I apologize in advance, there is food everywhere. Um, all these things you put together into this, this formula in which you can calculate how long uh, it will take until the child starts to lose it. And uh, I'm deeply familiar with this reality. We, went, we drove down to France um, a few, uh, last month, um, went through the Channel Tunnel, and I, I kid you not, we had, we had not left Kennington before my third child asked if we were on holiday yet, and uh, <laughs> we had arrived. And there's a sense in which, you know, why do they, why does, where does that question come from? It comes from ignorance. It comes from not knowing. And when a Christian is bucking against and resisting and agonizing with the will of God in such a way that is born out of a grumbling, irritation and frustration, the, what they see is the limitations of the holy life or the narrowness of what Christ's will is. It seems to me that the problem there is that you're as ignorant as a child in the back seat. That's the problem. And it's the mindset of a slave and not of a, of a friend. And what Christ's invitation is to us 
is to begin to comprehend the dignity and the privilege of what it means to be his friend. And a friend is someone with this mindset. You've paid careful attention to the words of Jesus, to his mind and to his heart and to his will. It wasn't enough that you just trust him for your salvation, but a Christian who really understands what it means to be Christ's friend has dived into the word of God, immersed themselves in it so that they can understand the plan of God, the love of God, and the perfect will of God. And so you know what he's doing in this world, and you know your place within his will. A friend, therefore, can jettison your selfish, narrow ambitions and lusts and desires that are an antagonizing and an opposition to the will of Jesus. You can abandon them because you see how they do not fit within the bigger picture and the plan of God. And it's not burdensome for you to do so because you have bought in fully. You are bought in heart and soul. You say there is no greater dignity or privilege for me than to be a friend of Jesus and to be about his will and his work because I can see what he is accomplishing in this world and what he has done for me. A friend knows and understands. I think, by the way, that that's why he speaks about obedience here. When he says, he says you are my friends if you do what I command you. At first, that sounds Harsh, doesn't it, in a very hierarchical way. But think about this for a second. Because you're a friend of Christ, you know the heart of Christ. And therefore you know what he wants and what he desires. And your obedience flows out of the intimacy of your knowledge of him. I tell you, none of my true friends have ever bought me a voucher to a wellness spa. Because they know that I would be angry and not happy with that as a gift. But just last week, true friends clubbed together and bought me a wonderful rare whiskey because they know my heart. (laughs) And there's intimacy there. There's friendship, true friendship. And there's a sense in which when Jesus says, you're my friends, if you do what I command you, he's saying, this is a marker of whether you know my heart. When obedience flows from the longing, the desire, to do what pleases Jesus. That is what it means to be a friend of Christ. Which mindset characterizes your life, Christian? Whatever you see in yourself or in others, that grumbling and that frustration, that irritation with the commands of Christ, know that that is born out of ignorance. You're so narrowly focused in on your own will and desires, you haven't even begun to comprehend the plan of God. But when you see the love of God and his perfect plan, you see what he says here, that greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you see the friendship that Christ has offered you in laying down his life. And that puts you and your discipleship to him within the context of his love and his great perfect plan. Ah, then, friend then, then you want to follow him. My urging and my encouraging to you is if you sense any resistance in yourself to the will of Jesus, any frustration, any negativity, know that that's born out of ignorance. And I encourage you, like the disciples, immerse yourself in the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus.